genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. When my girlfriend passed away um, and I was in a bad headspace, I've breathing, I, I came across breathing. Sounds so simple, that thing we do all day, every day. And it literally changed my whole outlook. It was like the light bulb switched on. I had a very powerful experience. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al. I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I hope that you're feeling a little bit less stressed from last week. I'm not sure we are. We, we've got a lot <laughs> to get due. We, we have to set off for the UK um, very, very shortly. And so we want to get all these done. So I'll be honest, I'm a bit grumpy today, if the truth be told. And um, I think Leanne's putting on a brave face, but I, I am a little bit grumpy. So if I get grumpy with you, listener, I'm really sorry. I, it's not you, it's me. I need, <laughs> I need to take some of this advice on board. Yes, it's a well-timed episode, I guess. We are back with part two of our special series on managing stress and staying mentally fit during the chaos of the holiday period. You might be looking forward to the break from work. You might be dreading the time you'll be spending with your family. Either way, we're here to guide you through how to ho-ho-hold onto your serenity this Christmas. I have a feeling that we're going to have a few puns in this one. You seem like you're in a punny kind of mood. <laughs> I'm in a punny kind of mood. So yes, this is part two of a two-part series. Last week, we looked at the truth and lies of mindfulness uh, and how staying present may give you the greatest gift this Christmas. There you go, do my own pun there. Nice. Um, and also maybe the greatest gift you can give others. This week, we're joined once again by the renowned psychologist, Dr. Audrey Tang, and mindfulness coach, Sean Tolram from HSBC. We're also thrilled to welcome a special guest here. It is Stuart Sandiman, who is the Radio 1 DJ. Uh, he's the host of the Decompression Sessions. And also, I believe he's written a book. He has. He's done all sorts of things. Stuart Sandiman is very cool. Our guests are all here to help you slay your stress this Christmas. Mm. 
<laughs> in this episode. We will be exploring three secrets, three ways that you can build your mental fitness and stay serene and centered over the holiday period. I'm not going to tell you tell you what they are. You're going to have to listen and find out. But um, but yeah, before we dive into our three secrets, let's reacquaint you with Dr. Audrey and Sean and introduce you to our third guest this week, Stuart Sunderland. I'm Dr. Audrey Tang. I'm a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society. I'm also a business author. My area of research was on emotional labor, which is the presentation of certain behaviors and emotions that go alongside the technical aspects of your jobs. Okay, so I'm Sean. Um, I'm the head of mindfulness at HSBC Bank, and um, we're trying to embed mindful ways of working across the organization so that we can help employees to build happy, healthy, and successful careers. We are thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Stuart Sanderman, the voice of a God. They're going to love this. Stuart's a Radio 1 DJ and host of the Decompression Sessions, as I mentioned. His uh, book, Breathe In, Breathe Out, is a Sunday Times bestseller, and he's the founder of BreathPod, which is a London-based practice that offers group or one-to-one breathing workshops. Let's go meet Stuart. I founded a company called BreathPod and BreathPod is really about giving people the tools to empower themselves um, and a big tool that I use is breathing. Last week we explored how mindfulness can help us manage emotions and stay present during stressful periods. Go back and listen to that because it's really, really important. I think it gives you a really good basis for this episode. But there are no rules here. So if you do want to listen to this one first, absolutely fine. All we're saying is that it'll probably make a little bit more sense if you go and listen to part one first. This week, we're continuing the theme of individual well-being, but broadening the conversation to talk about mental fitness more generally and how you can stay festive, not frosty, this holiday season. With that in mind, let's start at the beginning. What is mental fitness? We asked Dr. Audrey. Well, well you like using the term fitness rather than health in general because health sounds very that's what it is static that's all you're getting whereas fitness we understand that to be something that can change if we work at it we get better at it so you'll find a lot of mental health professionals are now using the term fitness rather than health because it reminds us that mental health is something we need to keep working at emotional health resilience we need to keep building that that muscle as it were we need to keep actively seeking it i talked about this in a an academic paper i wrote uh, for the who but also the the best analogy or the best description i would give you is from martin seligman the founder of positive psychology when i first came across him he he was writing about depression i was in psychology a level and he talks about learned helplessness because that was his original um area of research but he he said before he founded Positive Psychology. I used to think that I could take depression and fear and anger away from a patient and then I would get a happy patient. I didn't, I got an empty one. And that's because the skills of thriving are different to the skills of minimizing sadness. So now we know what mental fitness is, let's just dive into a little bit more about how we can build our mental fitness levels. There's a massive individual responsibility and I, I think that's an area that we don't talk about enough. And certainly in my experience, sometimes even when you give people the freedom and the autonomy and everything that they need to look after themselves and create the environment that they need, 
sometimes they still find it difficult because of you know, the ingrained behaviors and beliefs that we've built up over decades of, of being in the working world. It can sometimes even be difficult for us as individuals to look after ourselves. And you even think, you know, if you set your to-do list for the day and by 3 p.m., let's say you're working a normal nine to five, by 3 p.m., you've completed your to-do list. Most people will then fill the next two hours with more things. If I said I was going to use those two hours to sit and reflect on everything that I've done and everything that I want to do, some people would, would think that's crazy. They think, what are you doing? You're wasting time. You're being lazy. So it's, it's kind of changing that ingrained mindset that we have within us to really think about, okay, how has the world changed? Because it has changed significantly. How has the world of work changed? What are the demands on our brain in today's world? And how do we best look after our brain? I think Sean's advice is particularly important for younger people in the workforce, because once a habit is made, it's really hard to break. There is a lot of beef around Gen Z when it comes to work ethic. We've seen quiet quitting, lazy girl jobs, talk of snowflakes, not just because the winter season is here. Older people think younger generations don't want to work. I wonder if actually our colleagues joining the workforce are trying to set some healthy boundaries from the start of their career to ensure that their work is sustainable, that work is an aspect of their life, but not entangled in their identity. A pretty healthy outlook, actually. Sean shared his experience with stress in his early career and how he needs to shift his mindset to stay mentally fit. I cared a lot about impressing people, about doing what I thought other people wanted me to do. Um, I would push myself. I would compete with those around me because some of us work in competitive environments. I would try to get you know the best end of year rating so I could get the, the bonus and the pay rise and all of these things. So all of these things that we do to, to climb the corporate ladder. And it was causing me a lot of stress. You know, I didn't burn out or anything, um, but I, I was under a sort of a, a moderate level of stress all the time. Um, that's what that's what I noticed. And I realized that it, it's unhealthy to be in, in that place because when you're stressed, there's various changes that, that go on in, in your body. You know, you've got adrenaline and cortisol flooding through your veins. You've got blood being diverted away from certain areas to power up the muscles. So, you, you know, to put you into fight or flight, your pupils dilate, your hair stands on it. There's, there's all these things, your breath quickens, your heart rate quickens. And if you're in that state for long periods of time, it can be detrimental for your health because the stress response is designed to work in short bursts. And I realized that. So by implementing principles of mindfulness, I've been able to control those stress levels, but more importantly, it's given me the awareness of how I feel in my environment so that I can make better decisions. So I can decide, okay, for me, I'm gonna spend this one hour on reflection and I'm gonna put that in my calendar and reserve that time or um okay maybe for the rest of this week from 4 to 5 p.m i'm going to reserve that time for a particular thing that i want to do so just being able to take control of my time um, and really think about how i want to use it i think that has been transformational for me it's reduced my stress levels and it's made me more effective and more productive in the workplace Dr. Audrey agrees that sustainability is key. If you don't find time to rest and recover, then your body will find time for you. Sustainability is probably the key implication or the key consequence. 
If you yourself as the leader are not looking after your own self, there comes a point. I mean, we've heard it's, it's an old cliche. If you don't make time to be well, your body will find time to be ill. And the issue there is physical health is not necessarily under our control and mental and emotional fitness will have an impact on it. If we are working so hard that we're losing sleep, if we're not um, emotionally sound or emotionally fulfilled or at peace, that can cause us lots of other stressors. If that's affecting our sleep, if that's affecting our digestion, if that's affecting all of the practical physical things, our body's going to respond. And unfortunately, if you're then getting things like high blood pressure, heart attack, stomach ulcers, which are all often precipitated by stressors and and mental health issues, you have to almost hand over your health to the medical professionals because your body has got to the point where with the best will in the world, you still can't manage. So that's one of the the first reasons why if, if you don't look after your health, this lack of sustainability will happen to you personally. And if you're not doing the job, who is? Then secondly, if you're also not investing in yourself, that's going to have an impact on everybody else because it's likely the culture is going to be one of not investing in other people, in which case other people also will learn not to take care of themselves. And so the vicious circle continues. I've coached leaders who struggle with making time for themselves, time to nurture their own well-being. I mean, let's be honest, I have been one of those leaders. I burnt out and I burnt out really hard. One of the techniques that I used in my recovery and to maintain my sense of equilibrium since is to map out my time, time to rest and recover. We often focus a lot on the rest or relaxation aspect of this when we think about self-care or building our mental fitness. And, And that's for good reason, you know, relaxing with a good book, watching a film, it does impact our body. It lowers our sympathetic activation, which means our heart rate and blood pressure are lower. But recovery activities can also be important. Things like hobbies, exercise, spending time with friends and family, doing a crossword puzzle or just something you're good at. Al loves nothing more, and I don't get it, but he loves nothing more than chilling out in the office on a weekend and spending a few hours coding. Don't get it. But then I enjoy spending three or four hours cooking a a Sunday roast. I don't get that. (laughs) You know, these are examples of mastery activities. So they're fun, they're challenging, they bring us joy, they build our confidence, they help us feel like we've achieved something. And that's really important when we're in a role that can sometimes feel never-ending. There's also that added bonus that by focusing our attention on something different helps us to detach from work. There's some really cool research by an organizational psychologist called Professor Sabine Sonnentag. She's an expert in rest and recovery. So Professor Sonnentag has found that relaxation results in more positive effective states. So being calm, being quiet, whereas mastery activities get as excited and alert. So if you're having trouble sleeping, a relaxing activity in the evening is going to be more appropriate. But if you're looking to refocus your attention in a way that perhaps mindfulness does, but you're not quite at the point in time when you're able to practice that effectively, indulging in a mastery activity will have the same effect. It will refocus your attention. It needs to be something that's engaging enough that requires concentration, but not so intense that it prevents us from recharging. As Professor Sonnentag puts it, go for where the greatest need is. 
But whether it is rest or recovery that tickles your cranberries this Christmas, the important thing is to carve out time. That was that was unintentional, actually, carving the turkey. Carve out time <laughs> to make sure it happens. Dr. Audrey explains more, including how you can let others know when you've decided to take that me time. A book in time for yourself, as in in your calendar. So whether that is blocking off lunchtime. So I, I see my dad every Tuesday. He has dialysis and I take him out for lunch every Tuesday. That's blocked off time. As far as I'm concerned, he's my best client. And and that's that's it. That time is non-negotiable. And if we do that, we remind ourselves that the things we care about are as important as all the other people that we're fitting into our calendar. Another lovely thing is not being afraid of the out of office. Now, I just dislike it because sometimes I get a lot of spam after I've had an out of office. On. But um, if you if you use that, what you're actually and then put the message of I'm following my own advice. I'm actually taking a break. I'm, you're you're encouraging other people to recognise that self care is important. So don't be afraid of using the out of office to to make a point that you're looking after your own self care. Another silly thing, uh, well, it's not that silly because there's been very recent research on it. Dr. Laura Gyug has done this research on emailing. Is um, if you're emailing, say at a weekend because that's what you do and that's that's fine. Put a very simple statement at the top that is, I might be emailing now, but this is, there's no rush to do this. Tell the other person that it's okay not to not to drop everything over the weekend and respond. Our special guest, Stuart Sanderman, is a BBC Radio 1 DJ and host of the Decompression Sessions, a show that combines music and helpful advice to help you escape the noise of the world and improve your mental fitness. The relationship between music and emotions has been an area of fascination of research for decades. And, and that's behavioural research. If we're talking philosophers, perhaps millennia, I actually saw a quote that, that Plato um, is, is accredited to, to Plato, saying that music gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, fight to the imagination and life to everything. As Stuart explains, music is also a great tool for relaxation. No, I think the that's the beautiful thing about music is music, we entrained the rhythm of music. Now, music has got personal taste too, depending on what we like and what we feel and, and what emotion we link to that sound. So it is personalized, but there's a lot of research now around um, certain sounds, certain frequencies, certain sound waves that will make us feel a certain way, whether that's for relaxation, whether that is for energy. What I do in the decompression session, I, I don't go deep into the science of that. I just create nice music that is really um, interesting to listen to. And usually the music will fit the show. So if it's a show on confidence, probably a little bit more upbeat. If it's a show, a, a sleep show, then it's real ambient and stripped back, very, very relaxed music. What happens when we listen to music is it creates that feeling in our body. Our breathing rhythm will start to change and we'll start to feel a certain way and start to relax or or maybe feel like, oh, we've got loads of energy to go and hit the gym or go for a run. So yeah, music plays a big part in how we feel and, and how that um, affects our body and mind. If you're a leader or a manager, then it's even more important to carve out your own time for rest and recovery. We've just concluded some research at Oblong, which is our consultancy, um, that has shown that employees believe leaders are more effective, engaging and inspiring if they invest in their own mental health. 
is that kind of old analogy that Leanne uses all the time. You need to put your own oxygen mask on before you try and help others. Well, business leaders need to invest in their own mental health because actually they're role modeling their behavior to everybody else. If you as a business leader are going around saying, oh, well, we care about your well-being, but perhaps you're actually burning the candle at both ends, or perhaps your actions aren't matching up with what you're saying, that can be very problematic for everybody else. Organizations are quite organic in the way that they respond, and they can often, teams can often take on the personality of the leader. If a team is very, very stressed, very snappy, it's creating a toxic environment, we do kind of have to look a little bit further up and see what are the demands coming downwards. So the leader is well-placed to understand their own emotional demands and what they're placing on everybody else to some extent and therefore need to role model their own looking after their own health. However, the other reason why leaders need to invest is because they are in the position to make changes. They're also in the position to recognize when something's going wrong because so often we go to the workplace and we do everything, we work hard, we, we want to get praise, we want to do well, we want to um, improve ourselves. And we might be pushing ourselves to the point where we're struggling to cope. And when you're in the situation, you can't see it. And you also may not know where you can reach out to help. So the leader has an extra responsibility to recognize and put in not only ways to perhaps change the reasons for that stress in the first place, but to support that individual who's going through all of those issues. Dr. Audrey had some advice for those leaders, maybe a word of warning for people who may be inclined to brush off this importance of investing in mental fitness and the needs of our emerging workforce. When it comes to Gen Z, the problem is for organisations is if they are not understanding this and they're just writing people off as, oh, you're entitled or you're not capable, then they're not even going to get that mindset. They're going to have a brain drain. And they're not going to get that mindset making decisions at the higher level because they will never, the Gen Z wouldn't, employees will never reach there because they're just going to say, do you know what? I'm not going to be part of this and they'll leave. And so organizations, again, it's that sustainability. They're not doing themselves any favors by not listening and learning from Gen Z. Just because you're asking somebody what their needs are doesn't mean that you're going to have to fulfill all of them. I think we have this weird kind of belief that if we ask someone what they want, we suddenly have to give it to them. That's not true. But we open a dialogue and we open a conversation. The number of times I've had young people talking about mental health on my radio show, and I've, I've asked them, well, what one thing can we do? They've all said the same thing. Listen to us. Listen to us. Don't don't advise us. Don't tell us. Just just listen. Because if you listen, then you can form some sort of negotiation and you might have ideas that they didn't have. They might have ideas that you didn't have. It's it's not about one thing is right and the other thing is wrong. It's about being open and not living in our own echo chambers for both sides. So communicate and speak to them and ask them, what are the issues? It's the same thing that I say to any generation, if you're leaving a workplace and you're not happy, is give the exit interview. Because even though you may not be able to do anything for you, what you can do is at least alert the organization to the things that you've been struggling with so they may be able to put in changes for the next lot of employees or the people who are still there. Happily, Sean has already seen this shift in HSBC. What we're finding is that the conversation about um, mental health and how the brain works and what we 
what needs we have as human beings, that's becoming a bit more normal. Um, and when we talk about these things, particularly in the boardroom, it's not an unusual thing now. So it, it's something that we discuss. You know, we've got stats to, to back up the work that we're doing. So it's becoming something that's more real and more tangible rather than something that's theoretical and may or may not be useful. Um, so that's the biggest difference that I've seen. Um, and I'm being called to do um, sessions for lots of uh, senior management teams, so the top people in the organisation. And uh, we are seeing now that there is that recognition at the top that, that it is important. And, you know, even if those people at that level don't do mindfulness, what I really like is that they can see how other people might benefit and they can think, OK, I don't do mindfulness, but I'm going to support it because I can see that all of these people are getting something out of it. So for me, that that's the shift. And, and I think that that's a really positive thing, which, which I want to see more of. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. So that is our first secret, rest and recovery. But once we're relaxed like a well-baked fruitcake, what's next? Our second secret to staying calm this Christmas is reflection. So reflective practice in psychology is fundamentally about consciously thinking about and analysing what you do. So it's a key aspect of growth, of learning, and it's about critically analysing our actions and experiences to foster that development. By engaging in this type of practice, we can better understand our thoughts, our emotions and behaviours. That in turn encourages self-awareness, emotional intelligence, problem-solving skills, and that in turn can build our psychological capital, which is our levels of self-efficacy, hope, optimism and resilience. Put more simply, reflecting on how we overcame challenges in the past gives us confidence that we can do it again in the future. Psychological capital is a valuable resource in building a positive psychological state, and that has an impact on our well-being and overall life and work satisfaction. Sean is an advocate for reflection, explaining that it not only helps us to internalise and process events, but identify opportunities for the future. One thing that I think is really important is to give yourself time to digest the events that have happened throughout the day or throughout the week. Because in many instances, we, we go forward in a state of autopilot. As humans, we're very resilient. We'll get our heads down, we'll plow through the work and we'll just, we'll just keep going and going and going. Um, sometimes we go too fast and we end up going very fast, but going round in circles. 
So by taking that time, it allows us to slow down so that we can then move slower, but in a straight line. That's kind of the way I, I describe it. So in that time, reflecting on what's gone well, what hasn't gone well, any opportunities that might have presented themselves. And sometimes once you give your brain that space, you can come up with ideas and insights that you wouldn't have had before. You know, like people have the shower moments. They say, oh, I was in the shower and I solved this problem or they wake up the next morning and, and they've got the answer. It's because when your brain is working hard and you're in a state of fight or flight, it's very difficult to access your higher brain function because your resources are going towards power in fight or flight mode. But when you allow your brain to calm down, to, to slow down, it then gives you better access to your higher brain function so that you can come up with these ideas and you can be more creative and innovative and you can make connections that you wouldn't otherwise have made. So um, that's, that's what I use the time for. And I always find that at the end of it, I look at my notepad and I've got four or five ideas that I wouldn't have had otherwise. As a chartered psychologist and leadership trainer, Dr. Audrey also believes that reflective practice is a powerful tool when it comes to building capability and mental fitness. Her books, which are The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, The Leader's Guide to Resilience, and The Leader's Guide to Wellbeing, are packed with practical advice, including some incredible frameworks to facilitate this reflective practice. I wanted to know if she had any particular favorites across the books or some that may be a good place for people to start when they're on their journey to building mental fitness. My favorite is the Wellbeing Wheel. Now, that most people know it as the Wellbeing Wheel. I like to use that for goal setting, but it's not just used for that. You can use that for a project that you've got to do, or you can use that for finding out your ideal life or thinking about that. And I'm just going to give you a quick demo of the wellbeing wheel here is you have a circle and you fill it with the things that make your ideal life, but you tell me the size of the pies. So for example, if family comes into that, not just ideal life, it might be just your goal, whatever your goal is. So say it's ideal life family it might be career but maybe career is more important than family that's okay it's okay um it might be money but maybe money is not so important or it might be exercise and maybe exercise isn't so important and the reason i love this is you are telling me what your priorities are if this person were to say well why is my life out of balance then the answer will be, well, probably because you haven't spent enough time with your family or exercising. And then the reason why you create the segments of your own size in terms of your priorities, they might say, well, family's three or four, exercise is only one or two, so maybe I need to work on exercise. But then you as the coach can say, well, actually, no, exercise is a lot smaller than family. So maybe you'll feel better because this is a much more important aspect of your life if you see what you can do to notch family up one. Stuart agrees that reflective practice is an excellent way of building self-awareness and managing our emotions and understanding what he calls our lowercase trauma. Here's Stuart to explain a bit more about this lowercase trauma. When we think of the word trauma, we often think of the big T, the PTSD, um, somebody coming back from war or somebody who has uh, experienced some sort of abuse or somebody who's gone through grief or a real... Um, impactful challenge. When I talk about little t, I'm really looking at maybe the things that we don't think are really affecting us, but they are. And that might be told by a teacher when they're younger that they're not good enough or something that we start to create this belief around ourselves that we play out as an adult. And we still see that play out in the workplace. So although it's little t, it, it, for me, it's just as impactful, especially when we see it in the workplace and we see it 
um, but for so, so many people. And we all have these. We all have these experiences, um, negative tapes, I often call them, um, thought patterns that we have uh, that I call little T because it's maybe less obvious. It's le- less kind of, you think, oh, I'm okay. This isn't maybe a thing that's impacting me, but it really is. And it sits in that more therapeutic space and understanding ourselves better. Because once we get better at understanding ourselves, we have more awareness of what makes us do the things we do. We then can understand why we're reactive in certain situations, which is really, really important in a workplace. Uh, instead of being reactive, instead of that reaction to stress, triggering um, something or a, or a way of being with your team or um, a decision that you have to make in that moment, instead of being more responsive, being able to find that calm within the eye of the storm and feeling that um, real sense of calmness, even when there's chaos around you. And to manage that and understand that, we need to understand what makes us us and what is triggering us in stressful situations, which is where that little T concept comes in. But of course, reflective practice and positive thinking isn't a magic wand. And if we're not careful, we may creep into the world of toxic positivity. So toxic positivity is caused by an excessive and ineffective emphasis on positive outcomes and experiences. And that can often lead to the dismissal of genuine feelings of sadness, distress, or even suffering. It can actually be really harmful as it discourages people from acknowledging and dealing with their emotions. Toxic positivity overlooks the complexity of our feelings as humans and the value of navigating through the full range of emotions for psychological health. Dr. Audrey explains more, giving the advice in some circumstances, rather than staying positive, stay curious. Uh, I would say the biggest piece of advice for anybody, whether this is an organisation or whether this is an individual, if you are in that place of fear or sadness or anger or perhaps people are off sick or it's a toxic environment, toxic workplace, you cannot jump from that spot to happy and joyful and thriving just by thinking I'm going to be positive and I'm going to do happy things. It doesn't work that way. So I come back to Martin Seligman. He says, if you can minimize the sadness, you get this emptiness, you get this neutrality. If you cannot minimize the sadness, use a state of curiosity. Ask yourself, why am I feeling as I do? What can I do? Who can I ask for help? How has it worked for me before where I've been able to feel better? And if you use the state of curiosity, that bridges the gap between that sadness and toxicity or negativity and happiness enough where you can actually start to take healthy steps forward. And this works for individuals. This works for organisations. It's tough to stay positive when managing a business, but that's the job. You are the buffer between business problems and employees. You shouldn't be transferring your issues down the chain. It should be the other way around. This is why your own resilience is absolutely key when managing and leading teams. So that is our second secret reflection. So our third practical tip to make sure you have a holly jolly Christmas is to... um, I am. I don't know whether I love or hate these notes, Lee. Um, (laughs) To have a holly jolly Christmas is to breathe. So let's hear from our guest, Stuart Sandiman, on how he found breathing and the impact it's had on his well-being and mental fitness. Got into breathing actually through grief. My girlfriend was diagnosed with terminal cancer and passed away. And it was a really challenging time, as you can imagine. And 
I didn't find breathing at that time. I didn't really have many coping mechanisms. But when she passed away, one thing that amazing that happened, I took my mum for Mother's Day to a breathing class. That's as far as I thought about breathing. I'd spent my life too busy to breathe. I've been all um, before my music, I worked in finance. And so I'd kind of jumped from a few things before that. I was quite heavily involved in sport. When my girlfriend passed away um, and I was in a bad headspace, I breathing, I, I came across breathing. Sounds so simple, that thing we do all day, every day. And it literally changed my whole outlook. It was like the light bulb switched on. I had a very powerful experience. Um, felt like the weight of grief was pulled off me, but it also felt like my girlfriend was there holding my hand saying, this is exactly where you need to be, which is very strange, very weird, very wonderful, very helpful, but also left me with more questions than answers. So that's where I set off in this journey around breathing and breath. Like what just happened in this session? Why haven't I been looking at breathing before? This is the one thing that keeps us alive. Um, why was I not looking at breathing as a tool to manage myself throughout my life, whether that was sport, whether that was creatively with music, whether that was being in a busy um, office when I worked in finance. Um, so that's what got me into breath and breathing. And I think for many practitioners or, or many people, when you find something that impacts you so heavily and so and you find something that helps you transform so much, because it wasn't just grief, that was like the the onion layer that peeled off. I felt like obviously worked through grief, then my sleep got better. My energy improved. I started to realize deeper aspects of myself, the way I've been living, the way I've been thinking, the way I've been operating, the reactive states that I'd been was in, my deeper kind of belief systems from my past. So I start to really kind of uncover um, and change in a positive way. When I met Stuart, I had so many questions, but I'd start with the obvious. We all breathe, but clearly not effectively. So what are we doing wrong? Why are we not getting the effects that you're getting from breathing? There's a multitude of different things. And the one thing that I think is very interesting that's often overlooked is when we go through an emotional experience, we hold our breath. Now, the natural flow of emotion means our breath will start to move when we emote, so we laugh, our breath kind of judders when we cry, does the same. But we unconsciously or consciously hold our breath to stop the natural flow of emotion. So that might be holding our breath to stop laughter because we shouldn't find something funny. We hold our breath. Or maybe if you're at work and you've had some upsetting news, but you're in front of your team and you're trying to hold it together and you can feel the tears start to flow, well, we'll hold our breath back to stop the tears flowing. So in essence, what we do is we contract our breathing muscles. So we tense our body. And this can be very minute or, or um, little contractions in our breathing. Our breathing changes. And because our breathing is sending a signal to our brain about our environment, all of a sudden we're sending a stressful signal to our brain. So we can have different experiences where we're not allowing ourselves to fully feel because it's A, not appropriate, or maybe our mind says it's not safe to feel this right now. And our breathing contracts. And then we can get stuck in these stressful breathing patterns or archetypes is what I call them in the book. We have different breathing archetypes. And because the breathing rhythm and rate and depth at which we breathe at will trigger us into feel certain ways then when we're stuck in these breathing archetypes, you'll find that people with a similar archetype will maybe feel the same things throughout the day. That might be 
the anxious breather, the stressful chest breather. Um, it might even be the breath grabber I, I talk about, which is somebody that's kind of really breathing a lot too fast and they might button in conversations, etc. So there's all these different archetypes that we can have and it will, it will link to breathing and, and dysfunctional breathing patterns. The way we feel affects the way we breathe. But does that mean we can actually evoke an emotion by breathing a particular way? What I, the way I usually explain it is thinking happens in our mind. We know that. And feeling happens in our body, driven by our breathing pattern. And when our thinking and feeling match, that creates our state of being. So if we're saying my state of being is anxiety, well, that anxiety is a product of anxious thinking and our breathing pattern will match. So there's two ways to break that loop. We could change our thoughts, which many practices try to do. A lot of our thoughts are deeply ingrained habitual thinking, so it's quite hard. But if we jump in and override our breathing pattern, we will send, it's almost like this feedback loop. Thinking a thought, our breathing is matching the thought, but if we override and take control of our breath, then we're skewing that signal. So even if the mind's saying, I'm feeling really stressed, overwhelmed, or I'm really anxious, or I'm really nervous, then our breathing starts to change. We might be holding our breath in tight. We might be breathing too fast. We might um, have this change in rhythm. So if we take control of that, our breath in that moment, we'll send a new signal back to our brain. So we're almost taking control of how we feel in any moment. So exactly that, we can start to really change the way we feel in the moment. And where I find it very interesting is if our breathing in the moment triggers us to feel a certain way, and then that feeling, well, our feelings that last a week, we call a mood, a mood that starts to last a couple of months, we see as a temperament, a temperament that lasts years, we see as our personality. So we can start and see um, that all this stuff, parts of ourselves, we might think that, oh, I'm just an anxious person. And yes, we can have anxiety disorders and things, but for many people, it's because they felt a certain feeling and they've been breathing a certain way for so long that they just think it's part of who they are. And a lot of the work that I do and help people through is trying to break through some of that patterning. Now, that would be thought patterns for sure, which are often harder and more stubborn to change. But when we start working with the breath, it's kind of like the, the key to the back door where we can start moving through some of these patterns. Stuart's social media is packed with breathing exercises that will help you to regulate your breathing, retrain your mind and help build your mental fitness. We will leave some links in the show notes for you. There is one really simple breathing exercise that I use myself and with my coaching clients, actually. It's called the 748 method. So basically, you breathe in for a count of seven, hold your breath for a count of four and exhale for a count of eight and repeat that pattern for about a minute. I've found it's helped me in situations where I can feel my anxiety anxiety kicking in. I'm not a big fan of flying, so I tend to do that during takeoff. My heart rate's going a bit. It just helps me to regulate my breathing and bring my heart, heart rate down. And the clients that I've worked with have said that just by going through that process helps them to refocus, particularly if they're feeling overwhelmed. They find that they're focusing on, on the counting and the breathing rather than everything else that's going on. Don't do it for too long, though. Um, just to warn you, anything more than a couple of minutes, you might feel a little lightheaded. So that's our third practical tip to inhale the joy and exhale the stress this Christmas. It's just to breathe. 
If you're a business owner or a leader and you're thinking, yeah, this sounds good. I'd like to introduce some mindfulness or mental fitness at work in January. That is amazing. And we're genuinely behind you on this. But it does come with a few words of warning. Yeah, I mean, there is often a debate about who's responsible for well-being. Is it the individual or is it the organization? And inevitably, it's both. But as Dr. Audrey explains, investing in our own mental fitness, our own well-being is pretty useless if we're not supported with our well-being at work. Whenever people go off sick with stress, burnout, rust out, all of those mental health issues, what happens is organizations up their well-being interventions. They bring me in, they do lunchtime yoga, they get things like gym cards or restaurant cards and so on. It's all about the individual. However, if I were to go to work and fall down a hole, health and safety would not give me lessons on how to walk around a hole. They would not bring in training about how to get out of a hole. They, they would fix the hole. And this is the whole point that well-being interventions, well-being incentives, which aren't quite as good as interventions, and approaches to well-being, they really focus on the individual. But what we need to be looking at is the system and the causes of the stress in the same way as you would take a health and safety practical approach to stopping the causes of physical injury. So those are our three secrets for keeping calm this Christmas. Find time to invest in rest and recovery. Find time to engage in some reflective practice. And if all else fails, just remember to breathe. Now we have tried to lighten this episode with some silly Christmas-based puns here and there, but we have also covered some pretty heavy themes. If you are struggling with your mental health, if you are feeling in distress or despair, if you need to talk to somebody, we would always recommend that you contact the Samaritans. We will leave the telephone number and the website in the show notes. Equally, check out the Mind website. There are some awesome resources on there to help people who need support with their mental health at this time of year. And finally, if there is anything else that's come up in this episode, any questions, any concerns, you can always get in touch with us directly at Truth and Lies. Our email is in the show notes. Nice, Leanne. Nice. And also just a quick note that Samaritans is a UK based charity, but I believe is available on email um, and possibly even text message or web chat. So you even if you're not in the UK, you can you can contact the Samaritans in confidence. But I'm hoping that um, for most of us, we're going to be able to manage the stress a little bit better this Christmas. I'm hoping that um, we keep talking about Uncle, what was his name, the knobhead? Kevin. Uncle Kevin, who gets drunk and starts being a bit racist and you have to bite <laughs> your tongue. Anyway, so next week, part one of our predictions episode, we have brought in some incredible guests. Let's give some teases. So we'll have some returning guests, some guests who've been on the podcast before with brand new insights. Some pretty awesome CEOs to bring their two pennies worth. Oh, me, I'll be there. Hi. And I'll be there too. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. I look down quite a bit on that, but there's not much I can do. Fuck it. Yeah, there's only going to be eight people watching this YouTube video, so... <laughs>